Hey, Shauna, I'm super excited about you co-hosting the podcast today. Are you all set? Yeah, Jeff, all set. Let's just try not to talk over each other. You know how we've got that habit of finishing each other's sentences. Sandwiches. No, sentences, Jeff. Oh, right. Those two. How about you introduce this week's topic? On this week's episode of the Insights at Work podcast, we're discussing inclusivity, women of color in the boardroom, and best practices to encourage racial equity in the workplace. This is the Insights at Work podcast. Let's dive in. Um, Shauna, I usually do the let's dive in line. It's uh, kind of my thing. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Let's dive. Let's dive in. Oh, Shauna. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by not one, but two very accomplished leaders in North America's HR community. Returning for her second appearance as co-host is Shauna G, Director of Brand and Communications with ADP. Shauna, welcome back to the Insights at Work podcast studio. Thanks, Jeff. Super excited to be here. And for her first appearance, one of which I have been looking forward to for such a long time, is a communicator, a leader in the DEI community, and most recently, an author, having published her first book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. She's a TED Talk speaker, YouTube sensation, and apparently quite the DIYer when it comes to home renovations. So let's put the hammer down and welcome to the Insights at Work podcast, Deepa Pershothaman. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Deepa, firstly, congrats on the book. I read it this summer as soon as it came out, and I really enjoyed it. You give so many real life and inspiring examples from the women of color community that you've interviewed about how they succeeded and started some really, truly incredible companies where they could be true to their authentic selves. Now, in those cases, they were able to break away from their traditional corporate mold. I'm sure that we all know that there's still so many women of color, maybe even some of our listeners, who find themselves in their traditional corporate mold today, who are conforming to succeed, trying to find their own way to be that thrower of seeds, or the one to create the opportunity for their future women of color colleagues to get a seat at that senior leadership table. I wanted to start things off today with a mantra that you wrote in your notebook early on in your career, just to demonstrate that our listeners too can take steps to be their own authentic selves. Deepa, do you know which phrase I'm talking about? I think so. So when I was... um... Early in my career, before I made partner, I spent 20 years, 21 years at the same company. Um, Before I made partner, I had a phrase that I wrote in my email and I kept it and I would look at it often and it said, you don't have to see it to be it. And it's the opposite of what we tell most women, right? And what we talk about as we walk around in society, you have to see it to be it. But I wrote that for because for those of us that can't see it, like we still want to make it. So how do we convince ourselves we belong? How do we convince ourselves we can we can succeed. And so that was my little mantra that I would look at quite often. That's wonderful. I I really like that mantra. That's something completely different. You've almost flipped the idea of uh, how to use a mantra, which I think is, is, is really quite interesting. One of the things that really resonated with me was around the term co-conspirators versus allies. I thought that was a really 
interesting and smart take on how folks can support one another in the workplace. Um, and I, I was just wondering, how did you land with that? How did you move through that process? I, I know some of it has to do with it being more action oriented, but but where did you come up with that? Yeah, and I want to be really clear, that's not my term. It's a term Alicia Garza coined, and I saw it somewhere. And it really, really resonated with me because I think for a long time, we've had this conversation about allyship, like how to be a good ally at work. And so much of that doesn't really land for me. Like when I think of ally, I think of someone sometimes that's more passive or someone who's a bystander is the language I use in the book. And I believe in order to change systems and like really help people thrive at work, we need people to be more active. And so to me, the idea of co-conspirator, of someone who helps you change the structures and the systems around you that don't work is really like where I wanted to lean into. And this idea that women of color or people of color can't change the system on their own. We need all of us to work together to co-conspire to really create a new. So that's really where it comes from and, and the idea behind it. It's really so interesting. And I, I, it really resonated with me as a white woman sitting in a leadership role in terms of how I can be supportive in the, the corporate environment as well. Because as you say, there is action required across the board. It's it's not just on one individual group. And when we were going through the the book as well, one thing that really resonated was uh, the story around Macy. And in terms of, you know, having a seat at the senior leadership table doesn't always mean that things all of a sudden become easier or uh, set the tone for others to end up in that space. Is is there anything from that story that we could share with listeners that may uh, resonate, help them move forward with getting more folks at that senior leadership table who should be there? Yeah, you know, the whole book and uh, the company that I founded, Information, a lot of that came out of these dinners I did when I was still a partner at Deloitte, but I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And it was really hard to leave that identity because I had been in that, you know, with one company for over 20 years. So I started meeting with women of color. It started one-on-one. -on -one, and then over time, that turned into about a dozen dinners across the country where I ended up meeting 300 senior women of color, just, you know, literally just to network and to ask questions like, where does one go at a senior level? What does one do? And in the first dinner, um, you know, and I've changed obviously Macy's name, but in the first dinner, she was at, she was at that dinner in San Francisco. And she said, I sit in a seat of power and I don't feel powerful. And I just remember getting chills. I still get chills when I tell that story. And I heard a similar thing in almost every dinner and almost every woman I interview will say something like that. They'll be a senior woman, but they'll say because of the, the uh, amount that they have to conform or the ways in which they have to give up parts of themselves, they don't always feel powerful. And Macy told some more stories and I, I got to spend a good amount of time with her. She basically said like she was in a public company setting. She was a C-level executive and she is a white passing black woman. And she said, so sometimes when things were said in the room, she wouldn't always speak up because it was just easier to let it go or she felt uncomfortable or it just wasn't like the fight she wanted to take on. And here she was retired, really looking back in her career and wondering like, should I have said more? Should I have done more? I succeeded. But at what cost? And, and, you know, there was a little bit of regret as she talked about that. And I, you know, part of what I coached her on or what we still talk about is like, you know, yes, there are moments where I think we all wish we could have done differently, but you did the best you could. And it's hard to navigate those spaces when you're an only. And that's really what the book is about. The book is really talking about the shadow side of trailblazing, like how, yes, it's great these women made it, but we don't talk about like how hard it was. And we just kind of herald them as these great examples. But I don't want like one or two examples. I want to change what makes it so hard. So we actually have many, not just a first, a few word only. One thing that I found so interesting in the book was, and it's exactly like Macy's um, example, is that once you've become a senior leader, 
it's even harder to get things done because in order for me to stay here, I need to conform to everyone else around this senior leadership table. Yeah, there's a lot of stories in the book about senior women who would say things like, well, I don't bring pictures of my family or I don't, you know, I, I speak three languages, but I don't talk about that at work or I, you know, don't dress like with anything that identifies my ethnicity because I'm really trying to fit in and trying to rise. And what I'm really trying to say there and what we're really trying to unpack is we have like one view of how we see leaders. When I, I do an exercise sometimes when I do, um, you know, stage speaking or give keynotes and I say, I want you to think of a leader. I want you to think of an executive. I want you to think of a pilot. I want you to think of a professor, um, you know, a CEO. And, and usually almost everyone in the audience will think of a white male executive, usually in their 40s or 50s with salt and pepper hair, even the women, even the women of color. And then at the end of my speech, I'll say, I want you to think of someone you admire and, you know, really picture them. Like, what do they look like? What are they doing? And they're almost always older women, like, you know, the grandmothers, their mothers, Mother Teresa. And this idea that we have a disconnect between the people who sit in leadership and the people we admire and that those are two different qualities is part of the challenge. A lot of these women of color want to show up in different ways, but they conform or they let go of those parts that are really important to them because they've only seen one model of leadership. And so that's what it's really related to. It's not that they're doing it because they want to. Some of it's conscious, some of it's unconscious, though, because we tend to promote and advance people that, you know, of a certain ilk. And I'm just asking us to really, what is that ilk? And why do we think that's leadership ready? And isn't it time? Has it, how have the last two years taught us that maybe we need a different kind of leadership? We need more space for empathy, more space for people to show up with emotion, more focus on, you know, um, what we call in some of the conversations, I'm having future fit, like, you know, people who are more environmentally conscious or race conscious, right? Because those conversations are so important to the DEI space. So yeah, it's just this, this question of like, what is what is historic leadership and what is like the future of leadership and where are we headed? Well, one example that you give in the book that I found really interesting uh, when we're talking about senior leadership, it was with a white male senior CEO who asked you, he was like, Deepa, can you give me your advice on how you would position this messaging around the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, so uh, I got a lot of calls after George Floyd's murder. Um, I had just left Deloitte, you know, I was, I was, you know, freelancing a little bit, figuring out what was next, writing the book. Um, and I had a lot of leaders reach out to me saying like, I, you know, I just crafted a note, like, we know we need to say something to our employees. Can you take a look at this? And so there was one CEO in particular I talk about in the book where he called me and it was a friend of a friend, right? Who said, can you do this CEO a favor and just look at this really quickly? And I looked at the letter and it was a very boring letter. Like, like he had, there was no emotion in it, no like real grounding in what his thoughts were. It was just kind of a form letter of like, we acknowledge, you know, we know this is difficult. And I said to him, like, this is your opportunity to do and say more on this topic. And he said to me after getting quiet, like, I'm just afraid to say the wrong thing. And what I find with a lot of leaders on topics of inclusion is they almost err on not doing anything because they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. And if I could just give one piece to those, you know, piece of advice to those executives or those leaders is we need you to have more courage. We need you to try and get it wrong. Apologize, you know, practice apologizing as much as you try, you know, you, you try saying something and, and stepping out there. Um, because by the way, I always get things wrong too. Like this is a new evolving space. I'm not going to get all my words and my vocabulary perfect. And I give myself permission to apologize when I get it wrong, but we all need to do that. And so, yeah, with that white leader, it was like this real dissonance between wanting to say more and knowing he should, but not feeling like he could and being too scared to. And so I really tried to coach him to say more. In the end, he didn't say very much. And I've talked to him since he regrets it and feels like that was a missed opportunity. 
But in the next letter, he could say more, right? And so it's a process. It's a journey. And I think that actually lends itself really well to understanding how we can actually face different messages and different things that happen in the world. So, um, you know, when encountering some sort of racism in the workplace or prejudice in the workplace or something that's just inappropriate in terms of how we approach it, I know sometimes people often struggle with how to react or what to say and then leave feeling that they should have said something, they should have done something. And similarly, I can't speak to this from experience, obviously, as a as a white woman, but as a woman of color, how do you address that in the moment when someone is making a comment to you? Because that to me feels even more difficult, because now I have to actually speak up about something that's inappropriate. And I have to be this person to make this stand, um, looking for those co-conspirators, obviously, to, to help out, right? Um, so I'm, I, I'm interested to know um, what you think about that. What do you think are some approaches for people in the workplace to address those types of scenarios? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I found in, in interviewing these 500 women is that they faced a lot of microaggressions and a lot of racism in the workplace on a day-to-day basis. Some of the things were small, right? And kind of um, what would I call paper cuts, but some of the things were really egregious and they were not things that they were comfortable talking, talking about. A lot of the women that I interviewed, I would say the majority of the women I interviewed had not really talked about race at home, like had not really grown up knowing what to do when racist incidents happen. And so they were ill-equipped when they happened. And so one of the things I found as I was doing research is that we tend to hold on to negative messages four times as long as we hold on to positive messages. So if I'm given a compliment and I'm given like a criticism, I'm going to think about the criticism for like four days, right? And I think it's so important to understand that. And so what I found as I met with these women is they would get into these racist incidents or get into these difficult incidents, let's say like where they're being spoken over in a meeting or their idea is being, you know, co-opted by someone else in the room. And those are two things that happen quite often when I interview women of color. Um, And they wouldn't know what to do in that moment. They wouldn't know how to defend themselves. They wouldn't know what to say. Or let's say someone says something like I used to often um, when I was working with clients, like they would not think I was the partner in charge because I was I made partner really young. And so it always be like, well, who's in charge or you can't possibly be in charge or you look too young. Initially, that used to really bother me. And then I started realizing that was happening almost on a daily basis. And so I figured out how I would respond to those situations and practice what I was going to say. So I tell women of color, but I would also tell this to co-conspirators now, like practice what you're going to say in those moments where a woman is being spoken over or something racist is said at work, because we've all been there. It may not be maliciously intended, but it just doesn't land correctly. And in those situations, I tell women of color, like think about, write out three things you can say. I know for me, it's usually going to be around like, where did you come from? How did you learn how to speak English? Or, you know, um, my age. Those are the three things that have happened to me my entire life. I now have written out three things I can say, but I also tell women of color, practice saying them out loud, because in those moments when those things happen, we tend to feel pain and shame. And so we don't often know, even if we want to, how to speak up. And then we spend five days feeling like we should have spoken up, to your point, Shauna, when we don't. But I think the same thing is true for co-conspirators. If you hear something or say something, what I found, the research suggests that you also haven't been taught what to do around a racial incident. Like you haven't been taught how to speak up or we were so afraid of like offending people at work that we almost like pretend like it didn't happen. So you should write out three things you can say next time you are in that sort of situation and then practicing them out loud. And those could be things like I need to pause the meeting and unpack what was just said. Can we talk about that comment? Because it really didn't sit well with me. Or after the meeting, I want us to come back and just make sure everyone's OK, because that comment just, you know, was was hard for me. Can be whatever works for you, but like we all, we all need to practice that so we don't let those moments go by. 
And we don't, you know, sit with like, what did that really happen? Or why did that happen? Now, Deepa, you referenced the term pink chair role. Why is it that so many women of color, people of color, even the LGBTQ employees for that matter, gravitate to these pink chair roles? Or why is it so often that these are the very people who are approached to be those internal champions for causes that might align with their skin color or their sexuality? Yeah, so the, the pink chair comment comes from a conversation I had with an executive who, and I heard this over and over again in different ways, but that there are certain roles like um, team like team building roles or certain um, belonging uh, roles in the office, like maybe like a Friday breakfast sort of situation, right? Like where, the, where someone brings in bagels and coffee. Um, it's a very minute example, but that those kinds of roles often go to uh, the woman or a woman of color in particular to organize and to often do. And so this pink chair role is this idea that we give these team building and these community, these feel good, these, you know, these really intangible and non-revenue generating tasks to women and particularly to women of color. And um, I think we do it because most of us are first few and only. So when you're first few and only one, like there's a lot more demands placed on you that we don't understand. And I call it the job in the job. There's this whole extra workload that women and women of color take on at work that we ha haven't always talked about. And I think what I'm trying to point out um, in that nuance is that a lot of that work is non-revenue generating. And so it doesn't actually at the end of the year or you know when reviews come up or when uh, dollars are doled out, it doesn't serve in the same sort of way. But these women that I interviewed are taking on a lot of those roles. I'll give you a non, you know, revenue or pink pink chair role. That's a great example. Um, and it's not in the book, but it, it, I found it in my research. When I interview white men, they'll say I uh, mentor about a dozen people. When I interview white women of a senior level, they'll say I, I mentor two dozen. So a dozen to do two dozen. When I ask women of color how many people they mentor, some will say a lot of them will say, you know, 50, 100. Some of them, a good chunk, and I don't mean like one or two, I mean like dozens said to me, I mentor two to 300. And they said, because I'm the only woman of color in my industry. I'm the only one at my company. And so they may not be mentoring on a daily basis, but I can tell you, I get hundreds of emails a week of, can you just answer this question? Or can I just have 15 minutes? I don't know what to do. Because there's not a lot of people uh, that look like them, right? And so women of color are reaching out. And so I think we just need to appreciate that extra work, that extra burden. And so it's really understanding it's not just DE&I roles. It's not just formal roles we're asking them to take on on committees. There's a lot of informal asks and those things add up. And it's why we talk about people being exhausted in a very, women in particular, people of color being exhausted in a really different way. There's a different level of tasks being asked of them and they're not all related to their job. And we need to make space to understand that. Uh, there's this common theme that that's throughout the book through a lot of the stories where someone will be promoted to chief diversity officer. And they've got this great title, but they have so few resources yep. really behind them. And there's just so little bite in, in what they can do and the power that they have that most often, a lot of times, they're doomed even before they get started. Correct. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like when I first wrote the book or when it first came out six months ago, that was really, you know, newer. I do feel like we're starting to see so many articles out there about chief inclusion officers just turning and churning. Like, you know, they've been in the role for a year or two and they're just, they're moving on. It's a lot of these, uh, mostly women, women of color, black women in particular, were given these roles and they were promised direct reporting to the CEO, a certain amount of budget, a certain amount of headcount. 
they didn't get those things, first of all. And then especially as you talk, start to talk about things like recession, those are the first places, unfortunately, where there's conversations about, is this you know, a business imperative? Is this mandatory? So I think that's real. You know, I, I read, or I, I saw something over the summer and I was interviewed about it a little bit. It's the Edelman report that talks about trust every year. And this year, the numbers are even worse on how employees feel about their executive teams and companies. But what was most fascinating to me was the data that suggested that people, employees trust their chief diversity officer less than they trust their CEOs. That's fascinating. So we've put these women in these seats and then we don't even trust them to follow through on these topics of inclusion. So again, I, not only are they said being set up not to be successful, but I think people are also losing faith in these roles because one person can't save the company. And that's what some of this work feels like it's, it's done. It's placed one or two people and made them responsible for changing company culture. Inclusion is a culture changing conversation. It's not a, a you know, a, a, a task or a program you put in place. It's a very different way of thinking about it. And that direction really has to come from the top. You give one example about a lady who's promoted to a position of authority around inclusion and the leadership team constantly go to her and they ask for her opinion, they ask for her insight. And then when a new leadership team comes in, she thinks, you know what? They're not really walking the talk. After that point, she thought this really isn't the place for me. This leadership team doesn't reflect or align with my personal uh, values. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. She's a, a little bit of a younger woman. I ended up interviewing, I think, very tenured women because I was looking at first views onlys. And um, this story really stood out to me. So uh, it was kind of a, a studio situation where she was doing a lot of creative sort of agency work. Um, and she was sitting in a, a kind of almost like an informal um, inclusion role for her office in New York, where she had ended up taking on a lot of um, community building activities by default, because she was one of the only women of color. And she often spoke about women of color topics for a long time that actually advanced her career because she would be in team meetings with clients and be speaking about, you know, diverse perspectives on products and really, I, I think, making a niche for herself. The, the company was bought out by a very large, big um, uh, advertising company. And the new team that came, came in was all white men. And in one of the meetings, she asked, like, how are we going to serve our clients if our executive team, if our leaders don't look like the diverse clients we're serving? And she got a lot of blowback for asking that question and got, kind of got sidelined after that. And I talk about in the book how a lot of women of color, I call us truth tellers. When we tell our truth, we're often sidelined because a lot of the processes companies have in place don't really support, you know, changing issues around racism or changing processes. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of HR processes support the legal process, not really the employee process, which is not probably earth shattering, but it's surprising to me when it comes to racism. You would think that if you report racism, there's a lot in place to help you go forward. And we're just early in that process. And so unfortunately, most of the women that I interviewed, there's actually backlash to reporting racism and racist incidents because the company will go into protection mode. Um, and so that's a little bit of, I think, what she faced. But yeah, they couldn't believe she'd asked the question that everyone was thinking, but she had the courage to ask, which is another a role that a lot of women of color. Wow. And I think that story in particular really lends itself to the concept of psychological safety. So mm -hmm. coming out of a, an environment and a team where she felt safe and comfortable speaking her mind and bringing those ideals forward moving into a space where all of a sudden it it wasn't safe to do so. Um, we recently did a survey or a study uh, in the Canadian market uh, where we looked at psychological safety. So the, the positive news was that the majority of employees were feeling psychologically safe in, in the workplace. But what was really interesting and 
and really upsetting really was to see that uh, racial or racialized and indigenous workers mm -hmm. were nearly twice as likely to not feel safe. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's largely surprising mm -hmm. given some of the things that we have seen and that we have known, but to actually see it in the survey results on paper and such a stark difference mm -hmm. uh, really resonated. Um, I, I'm interested to know um, what you think in terms of the concept of creating psychologically safe environments and what are some tips perhaps that listeners can start to integrate into their day-to-day -to, -day to be able to to do that. Yeah, I, It's so interesting because I think a lot of people um, think that they have created safe spaces at work, right? Psychologically safe. I just call them safe spaces at work. Or we have processes now where we listen or hear from our employees. And I think there's a lot of uh, distance between we just started a practice and it becomes core to the culture and people really trust the process. And I tell a story in the book where I often go into um, companies and the CEO will say to me, you know, deep of my black and brown employees, and that was the language he used, my black and brown employees, tell me how it is. Like I've sat down with them and they they tell me the truth. I will go meet with those same groups because that's what I've you know been brought in to do. And I will hear a completely different set of stories. Um, and I think it just it's speaking to the fact that creating safety and creating um, places where people can tell their truth takes time. It's not done just because you've, you know, you hold a, a twice a year sort of town hall or you are, you know, one time asking your employees to tell their truths. Um, you actually have to make that part of the practice, part of the DNA. You have to actually work hard to create spaces where people are talking about it. Um, and we have to make sure it's not extra work that we're asking our women of color, people of color, our women to do, you know, as an almost another extractive process. So I think it, like my advice is it's understanding that you, just because you ask the question doesn't mean you've created a safe space or that you've held an hour for people to tell you everything doesn't. That's not how you change culture. It's actually about creating an ongoing process to listen to your employees, especially your more your less tenured employees so that they have a voice and they can talk about what's happening. And that there are um, more regular check-ins and more ways that you're getting more people to come to the table and tell their truth. And so you're not just asking that the most um, disadvantaged, you know, group or the, the group that's, you know, most affected or the most impacted or the most, you know, even marginalized to constantly speak to that. Um, DB, you provide an example in the book, this really great story around people who go on a business trip and they go to a country where no one speaks English. And how exhausting it was for them at the end of the day when they're recapping what everything happened and or they're recapping what maybe they missed or they're trying to translate things in their mind. And what I thought was so interesting about this example is that it really, through an HR perspective, it gives me this lens to think about, well, what about people that I work with and people that work in our company who English isn't their first language? And what a challenge and how hard it is and really how these people are really going above and beyond translating everything just so they can comprehend everything at the same level that anyone who speaks English, who their first language is, yeah. works at. So I, I worked in Latin America for five years. And when I had to do work in Spanish, like those days at five o'clock, I was exhausted, right? Just because having to actually do business in Spanish when that's not my first language takes a level of energy that I don't even think like, I didn't do the science on this, but like, it's just a different kind of energy. Like it, it, it's a much, it uses a lot more brain power. And the same is happening for women of color is what is the analogy I was trying to draw because we're having to code switch, we're having to translate, we're having to change, like is what I'm saying shareable, not shareable, how is it coming across? 
there's a story that I told in the book. It, I, sometimes when I take stages, I tell it in more detail. And I think it's really, it speaks to this story, you know, this example in, in great detail. Um, her name is Roxy in the book. And um, she was um, uh, in a large consumer products company in the Midwest. And I talk about how she was the only black woman in the department. She knew that when she was hired. Uh, what I didn't share in the book and like I was able to unpack with her is we were maybe 40 minutes into the interview and she started crying like pretty, pretty heavily. And um, she said a lot of the questions I was asking her were really landing for her in a very heavy sort of way. And so the story is she knew she was the only black woman in the department when she joined. She came to find out in six months she was the only black woman in the entire company. But then what she shared with me is she had moved her family um, to that town to take the job. And she is now one of the only black families, right? Her and her husband in this small town. And so the, the crying came from the fact that she was sharing with me like Deepa, I don't think until I had this interview, I understood how much I change, how I talk, how I wear my hair, how I dress, what I eat, what I talk about, like all the things I have changed. And she, she did air quotes when she says, I want my white colleagues who probably never met another black person to have a good experience with. And as a result, I'm doing all of these things. And the, the difficult part of the conversation is she's not in HR, she's not in comms, like had nothing to do with her job. She's an accountant. But yet she felt so responsible because she was the only person of her race in this community. Putting that pressure on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, think about it. Like she's trying to be perfect. Like when I, and I asked her, I was like, what does that mean to be a perfect, you know, black person for your white colleagues? She didn't know. She's like, I, I just, there's so many like bad, you know, stories on television or in the media. Like, I just want to make sure, you know, but she couldn't even explain what that meant to me. Like, so how, like, how is that showing up for her? Right. Think about how much she's thinking about that consciously and unconsciously. And in the book, Deepa, you talk about how they place so much pressure on themselves, women of color to cre either create that seat at the senior leadership table or keep that seat mm -hmm. at the senior le leadership table, because whether they like it or not, they have a legacy that nine times out of 10, they're going to leave behind. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, and by the way, I think this is true for women as well, because, you know, we're, in a lot of cases, we're not like the majority of executive teams. I think there's a real pressure, you know, that you're, I call it visible and invisible, right? That you know that all eyes are on you and you feel like you have to be perfect. And yes, you feel like you're creating um, the future pipeline, right? And every, like your success determines how, you know, if there'll be more like you. And so there's a lot of like unspoken pressure there that when I tell these stories or I have conversations with my male colleagues, like it's just a different, it's even hard to comprehend. Like that's what I think what the book, what I was trying to do with the book, like there's just stories that, that are so obvious to me or obvious to people who look like me, but they're just not obvious to others. And so it's really trying to tell those stories. Like there is a level of weight that you carry when you show up differently, right? And, and um, we need to understand what that weight is so that we can um, make space for it. We can talk about it. We can help others, you know, shed that work so it's not something we're doing all the time. But yeah, and, and I think, Shauna, to your point, it's the unconscious part that we carry that is the part that I think does us the most damage. Um, because once, once we had the conversation, she can decide, like, do I even want to do that anymore? But she didn't even know she had agency to decide. Absolutely. I was I was going to actually dive in and say, you know, I'll do the the little plug here for adp.ca and adp.com because I do think we have a number of exceptionally really great resources uh, for DEI from an HR perspective. So I just want to let listeners know about that. But I also wanted to ask you, and I'm sure you get this question all the time and it can't be bottled up into one response, but what are some tips, tricks, a few key things that maybe folks can start doing within their org own organization to start these conversations, to try and change the narrative a little bit within their companies. 
Yeah, I think it's the most important thing is understanding that so much of that uh, belonging or not belonging uh, feeling happens at the manager level, happens in like the team interactions. And so, you know, yes, I coach executives on what to do and like what the leadership says is really important and tone at the top is really important, but like really realizing that we all have a role to play in inclusion work and whether or not people are feeling like they belong or not. Really paying attention when someone is in a room and maybe, you know, like they they sit uncomfortably or they're, you know, that they've changed their behavior or something like doesn't sit, like doesn't feel like it's sat right for a woman of color. Like you don't have to do it in the meeting, but just, you know, checking in, asking questions, I think is okay and is, is something that sometimes helps. I think sharing your own stories, leading with your own personal stories and having more empathy for people. And you know, we call it walking in other people's shoes, but creating ways that we can actually do that more. So you know, sharing more of your own experiences, I think is one way to do that. And also I would say finally, like just realizing that um, this work requires patience. It, it, like I said before, we're not all going to get it right. And it's constantly evolving. Even the languages that we, you know, the words we use have evolved even over the summer. And so understanding and really trying to um, um, learn uh, how to be courageous and, you know, apologize and, and trying to make make, you know, space for these conversations is really, is really critical. And I think that's an excellent point to sort of think about, because I think we all have that idea that, oh, to your point, if you work hard, you get ahead. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we all know that there are a million different influences that come into that path for someone. It could be experience. One of our recent insight studies, we talked about proximity bias, and that's just being in the same space as someone, let alone uh, understanding, you know, their own experience. So I think that's a really great uh, tip and impactful piece for folks to to really think about. Deepa, we started the podcast with your mantra, you don't have to see it to be it. And I wanted to wrap up the podcast with the second saying in your book that really resonated to me. And that is the power of me. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about the power of me and the power of we. And I, I you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> if the, the biggest takeaway or the simplest takeaway is that we need both of those pieces if we're all going to find power, um, whether, you know, and not just women of color. And it's this idea that you have to figure out your power. Where does it come from? What's important to you? That power of me work, like shedding messages that don't serve you and figuring out how you want to lead but that we also need to find the power of we if we're going to change structures and systems around us. For me, that has been building communities of women of color so we can have conversations about how the workplace needs to evolve. It may be you know, church groups for some people or mom's groups for other women, but it's kind of, you need both of those things that you can't, um, you know, my friend Minda Hart says like, you know, success is not a solo sport, like rising in corporate, rising in these spaces is challenging. And so finding ways that you can find community, you know, you have to do the work on you, you have to figure out how you want to show up, but then you also need others if you're going to progress. Wonderful. That's some great advice. And I know we're, we're coming to the end of time and it's been an exceptionally interesting conversation. I wish it could go longer. Um, but I do know that Jeff, as part of his show, likes to end on a, a fun and exciting note. And uh, one of the things that we like to do is some rapid fire questions uh, with guests and they're really around favorites and firsts. So we're going to ask you about five questions and hoping for some very exciting answers, Deepa. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, so what was your first job? My first job was I uh, was a waitress when I was in high school at Lovely. a big steak restaurant. So <laughs> first car. Um, uh, it was a blue Ford Tempo. Nice. First concert. 
Sade. Oh, nice. Favorite concert? I'm going to say the same one just because that was an outdoor concert and it was, I just, I still remember it, it was just so um, magical, like to be outside in a picnic and have Sade singing to you. <laughs> That's a good one. That's like the double, double. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, what is your favorite piece of advice to give to young professionals who are just starting out? Mm. I'm going to just share my own favorite, the advice I got that I still carry a lot. It was from Schaefer, who was my biggest sponsor at Deloitte. And he said, never need a client more than you want a client. Um, and so this situation, like, I, I think it really speaks to like life, like never operate from a space, space of scarcity, you know, never give up your values, never, you know, give up your judgments, like always, you know, do business in a way that starts with like your values first. That's what I took from that. And I think that that's really important for really good advice that I still think about a lot. That's great advice. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And Deepa, it has been just an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast Thanks so much for joining us today. I've taken so many notes and you've just left such an amazing and very impactful impression on me and I'm sure Shauna and I'm sure all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Thanks right. so much, Deepa. Thank you. And with that, it looks like we've run out of racetrack. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit from it as well. If you find the Insights at Work podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate it. And if there's something that you would like me to discuss around this big world of HR and all things business, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay healthy and be kind. We'll see you soon on the next episode of the Insights at Work podcast.